Welcome to the Girl Tech Talk podcast. I'm your host, Sophia Tang. This podcast tells the stories of female and non-binary identifying CEOs, founders, entrepreneurs, and leaders who took unconventional pathways that cultivated their strengths and talents towards innovation, global change, and their unique version of success. Here at Girl Tech Boss, we believe exposure is the key to innovation. So by sharing the learnings, challenges, mindsets, and successes that make up the unique journeys of women in diverse fields of STEM, we will inspire youth to seek their own success journey and make their mark on the world. Hello, and welcome to the Girl Tech Talk podcast. On this episode, I am joined with Nita Madha. After receiving her bachelor's degree of science at Yale University and master's of science in public health at Emory University, Nita became a research assistant in the Special Pathogens Branch at the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. Then she joined AIR worldwide as a principal scientist conducting life and health risk research. Now Nita is the CEO of Metabiota, a company that leverages big data to make the world more resilient to epidemics. So thank you so much for being here, Nita. Now I'll give you a chance to introduce yourself and then we'll move on into our questions. Thanks, Sophia. It's great to be here today. I really appreciate the chance to chat with you. Um, I think you covered it pretty well on my background, uh, you know, just uh, maybe to highlight, uh, you know, expertise in epidemiology and uh, risk assessment for um, countries and governments and companies to better make decisions around epidemic risk. So that's uh, something I've been very passionate about for many years. Yeah, definitely. Um, just going back into your journey and your how your passion kind of started. Um, I'm going to start off with a question that takes you back to your high school years. What were your interests during high school? And did you know you wanted to go into epidemiology? Or if not, when did you kind of discover your interest and realize that was your passion and go into that field? Yeah, thanks for the question. Um, so I actually did know when I was in high school. Um, in fact, I, I kind of started wanting to be an epidemiologist when I was in the seventh grade uh, because I read a book, uh, it was like a children's book, but it was um, written about epidemiologists who had solved different disease outbreaks um, in, you know, uh, over the years. And I got very interested and fascinated in this uh, you know, intersection between, um, you know, like disease tracking and uh, detective work combined with the ability to impact and help you know, a, a large um, numbers of people. So, um, so I got interested in it very early. And then um, when I was in high school, I, you know, I knew that uh, to do that, I, I would need a background in biology. Um, I also, um, I did a, a program, it was like a co-op program at my high school that allowed me to work at the local health department. And so I actually was in the epidemiology section there and I, you know, help do um, all sorts of things, you know, lots of clerical work, just looking at different disease reports, but also doing interviews and, you know, tracking different cases and trying to actually do the work um, solving outbreaks. So it was a really um, important experience and something that um, I, I found to be very um, beneficial when I was in high school. Yeah, definitely. I feel like a lot of high school students really have trouble 
discovering their passion, especially with within STEM, it's such a large field. So it's really interesting how you kind of develop that passion so early on. And another kind of follow-up question that I had from that, was there a epidemic or any kind of disease that you were focusing on when you were starting your work or when you discovered epidemiology? Because I feel like it's really been a crazy few years with epidemiology just recently. So I'm just wondering how you kind of, what diseases were you working on during your high school years? Um, well, I think you know, even, even prior to that, kind of when I was, um, you know, forming this, this decision of, you know, being interested in, in epidemics, um, it was actually, um, you know, HIV and AIDS were starting to, uh, to, to figure prominently. Um, and then um, Ebola, uh, you know, was, there was some really large outbreaks in 1995 that, um, you know, kind of like really um, catalyzed things. And so, you know, some of that, you know, what was going on, both at home and abroad, really um, highlighted the importance of, uh, of epidemics. And they're, you know, they're not going away. And then when I worked at the health department, it was all sorts of um, you know routine things that were happening that we were tracking, like foodborne diseases. You know, are very very common and very prevalent. So we'd be tracking that. Um, there'd be you know uh, other things that would just come in sometimes. Um, you know, people coming in. Uh, that uh, we're bringing it by traveling or things that were happening locally, uh, you know, rabies, for example, we, we would have some of those. So, uh, so it was a lot of that, but sometimes, uh, you know, there's like the odd thing that would happen and then uh, it would be like all hands on deck. Yeah, that sounds amazing that you were doing that since high school. Like those are really huge problems that I know a lot of people have heard of. So I think that's really great. Throughout your career, you have definitely worked at a lot of different research projects, including a chapter for epidemic preparedness for the World Bank. And you've also worked in several organizations, including the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention and AIR Worldwide. Now you're the CEO of Metabiota. So can you tell us why you chose to work on so many different teams and projects and your biggest takeaway from those experiences? Yeah, it's, a, it's another good question, and um, I, I thought it was interesting because I, I actually um, think that I haven't actually done as many because, uh, you know, like I was at AIR for 10 years, so, you know, I think that's probably longer than average, <laughs> you know, these days, but um, I think, you know, sometimes when you're working in a place, then you, you might, uh, you know, find areas that you want to grow into that, you know, a place where you're working doesn't necessarily um, have that, or maybe there's another place that's, that's doing that um, to a greater extent. So, like, for example, from the move between AIR to Metabiota, you know, AIR is focused on all, all types of risks, um, you know, whether catastrophic risks like hurricanes, earthquakes, you know, and pandemics and, you know, a lot of other, you know, droughts, things like that. But um, what I found very appealing about Metabiota is as really focused on epidemic risk. And that's the thing I'm passionate about. So, you know, so, so things like that, sometimes it's just, uh, you know, circumstances can kind of uh, put some, you know, opportunities before you that you, uh, you know, sometimes you just have to seize them. So that's, you know, some, sometimes it's just, it happens down to chance, in fact. Yeah. Were there any challenges when kind of moving between those organizations that you encountered and had to kind of overcome? Um, I think probably um, the biggest one was a logistical challenge because I had to move from Boston, where I lived for about 10 years, 
across the country to California, where I live now. And uh, just, you know, the logistics of that were, were pretty challenging in itself. We, you know, the whole family had to move and <laughs> we just drove across the country. So uh, it, was, uh, it was a bit of a, a, a risk, you know, a little um, dip into the unknown, but it turned out to be a very um, exciting uh, time. Yeah, that sounds really cool. Um, there are definitely a lot of powerful and fascinating applications for AI, which I heard that Metabiota um, really integrates in their work that could dramatically disrupt epidemiology, but yet to have been fully uncovered because definitely there are a lot of advances to go. Um, where and how do you think AI and emerging tech have the potential to disrupt this field of epidemiology? I think there's a lot of potential um, we, that we haven't really yet unlocked, um, you know, anywhere from trying to understand why certain types of viruses will, uh, you know, jump from animals to humans and then cause large epidemics or pandemics. I, there's still a lot of understanding that needs to happen there. And it could be a place where AI could offer some insights, uh, you know, it, once we have sufficient data to, to really look at those problems and, and the drivers of, of this type of event. So, you know, that's one area. Another area is to try to uncover where are those places where it's likely that there's some sort of um, factors that could lead to a new epidemic happening, but we don't yet have enough information because, uh, you know, surveillance or other types of information that are coming in aren't uh, necessarily capturing that. So trying to get at that interface, you know, to get as early in an epidemic as possible, or even to anticipate where epidemics might start, I think is going to be a very um, important application of AI for the future. Oh, that sounds super cool. Um, definitely a lot of different AI fields that I have yet to like figure out. Um, it's really cool. I've never kind of heard of AI being used in epidemiology. Um, so that's a really cool application that some of our audience may be interested in looking into. Yeah, and, and there are a lot of others as well, just trying to, you know, better um, understand and predict, uh, you know, factors for risk and who may be uh, at a higher risk for more severe outcomes or, or, or things like that, or what causes of areas where there could be, um, you know, inequities or things like that. Uh, you know, a lot of it, uh, there's a lot of traditional data crunching that goes into it, but more and more there are applications where AI could also provide those types of insights where, um, you know, perhaps, you know, a person looking at it may not be able to necessarily connect all the dots, but an AI could at least, uh, if, you know, assist the, the human intelligence. The way we like to think about it is that, um, you know, AI, and, and uh, human intelligence are, are working together and it's really a, more of a supportive tool uh, because I, we always find that it's still helpful to have humans in the loop a lot of time looking at these results or even interpreting. Um, and you know, one other aspect as well is that um, a lot of these analyses are gonna rely on the data and like the, the data quality, the, the the standardization of data that will feed into these AI systems is going to be a very big theme uh, going forward over likely the next several years. Um, you know, we've learned so much as a result of COVID and where the gaps are in the existing data systems. And so I think we'll see a lot of movement happening with 
governmental bodies, um, international organizations trying to really um, tackle this problem and to have the types of data available and the governance to uh, make sure that it's being used appropriately. Yeah, you mentioned COVID. So obviously COVID has been going on for more than two, around two years, I think. It's been a long time. I don't even remember when it started. But yeah, how do you think the government can act differently and maybe make it easier to um, transition back to normal life after a pandemic? Well, again, this is a a very tricky question. Um, I think um, right now that the biggest challenge, of course, is, um, well, there's probably, there's many challenges, but uh, one of them is that, uh, you know, right now we, we still don't necessarily always have the most up-to-date and latest information when it comes to, um, you know, who's testing positive, um, you know, is when, when something like Omicron is happening that's spreading so rapidly with such a high um, prevalence, and incidence rate, does that mean, you know, should we be looking at something like hospitalizations and deaths as a better indicator of how severe the epidemic is in this time point? So I think there's um, there's still a lot to be done. One of the areas I think it, that, that could be strengthened is in the, just the communication uh, of the uh, late, like re- rationale beso- behind, um, you know, changing regulations and requirements, um, trying to really uh, build trust with the community. I think we've seen a lot of um, issues with that, with misinformation. It's, uh, it, it is a really big challenge right now and something that uh, will need to be addressed. Yeah, definitely. Now, just going a bit deeper into the AI technology that you guys use at MetaBiota, um, how does this technology actually work and how has it impacted the company's work? So there are three areas where we really um, focus on AI applications for epidemics right now. Um, So one of them is related to um, trying to get early signals of when there might be an epidemic of concern that's brewing or kind of on the horizon. So a lot of times, um, you know, a lot of people probably are are familiar with this now, um, having been in this pandemic for over two years, but you know, the, um, the reporting data, uh, especially by official organizations is often lagged compared to when, uh, you know, there's first indicators that something's happening. So we um, do a lot of, um, you know, web-based uh, looking at media reporting about what uh, might be going on. Are there, you know, unspecified pneumonia cases happening somewhere? So for example, we, our system flagged that even before, um, you know, COVID was um, declared by WHO. So so we look for those kind of signals and that's an area where AI and natural language processing can help us to parse through, you know, all of these different um, uh, unstructured data streams that are coming through and help us to uh, build that into some kind of um, insights and to figure out, um, you know, where, get get the signal out of the kind of the, all the noise that we might be hearing. So, So that's one application. Then a second application is related to I mentioned a bit more trying to figure out where these hotspots are where an epidemic might start. Um, And so we actually use AI to, um, you know, we feed in a bunch of data about the environment, about, um, you know, particular locations, uh, like the biodiversity estimates, um, you know, what sort of uh, diseases have emerged there in the past. 
and we kind of feed all of this uh, biological, sociological data into the, the system. And that helps to flag where we might expect to see hot spots or, or spark risk areas. And that's very helpful because we know that the data are incomplete. And so this helps us to fill in the map where, where the gaps might be, where we don't have a lot of data, but the conditions seem ripe to, uh, for something to emerge. So that's, that's the second application. And then the third one where we use, it's um, probably more rightly categorized as a big data type of approach, but looking at a lot of historical events, we, uh, we have a sense of what might happen and, and what, what's happened in the past, but we use some um, pretty extensive modeling techniques that simulate how epidemics spread from person to person and place to place on a global scale. And we do this with many different input parameters to help us understand what are, you know, what are those real possibilities of what could happen, what we call the tail risk for things that we haven't yet observed, but maybe much worse than what we've seen before. Um, and so, um, so we use a lot of um, simulation techniques to, to assess that. And we actually can then um, apply various types of AI and um, more traditional analytical tools to understand what are the drivers of you know, what makes an epidemic larger or smaller or what might uh, cause risks to certain populations. So those are just three areas where, where we're um, using these types of tools. And um, it's been very transformative in our work for, for everything that we're trying to do, which is really to anticipate future risks and to help uh, governments and companies to better plan and prepare for those. And so that, that's how we're using these tools. Yeah, those are three really cool applications of AI that I've never heard of. And I'm pretty sure a lot of our audience, it's new to a lot of our audience too, which is really amazing. Yeah, there are definitely a lot of different fields of AI, little sections of AI that can be used to fix so many huge problems that are happening in the world, including pandemics which I think is the largest problem right now, which is really amazing how you guys can kind of leverage this technology to do such amazing things. And hopefully in the future, this technology can make the next pandemic more bearable. That's definitely the goal. And I think, you know, one thing that even though we're in the midst of a pandemic right now, and we, we want, what we want to do is we want to learn from it and we want to be able to see where there are areas for improvement, whether it's in governmental systems, international systems, corporate systems, to understand where those gaps are and to shore them up for the next time around. Because although um, it's, it's, it's really difficult to think about this right now, but um, COVID is, is not going to be the last uh, pandemic that many of us experience. So you know, I think we have to just keep it in mind that it's not, you know, it's not going to be a tomorrow's problem, even after we're through COVID, it's something that we're, we're going to have to continue to actively plan for the future uh, that could occur. Yeah, definitely. Throughout your career in epidemiology, you have conducted a number of different research projects, and these are all huge research projects on a bunch of infectious diseases, which we know can become really widespread. How do you kind of approach these complex and impactful problems and kind of dissect them so that they're easier to work with. Yeah, that's actually a very important uh, key to this when working on any sort of really complex project or problem 
is really to be able to break it up into these um, like manageable chunks, because otherwise it's going to seem, um, you know, kind of impossible. It's going to be very overwhelming to try to tackle, you know, a, a really huge um, project. So, um, so the way I like to approach it is to just like try to um, think of it in terms of components, break it down into uh, constituent features. So if we're talking about, uh, you know, building, uh, you know, like a, a modeling system for epidemic risk, then we would want to think about what are the components that would be needed for that system. And then, you know, kind of just keep drilling down. So, you know, you, you kind of put it into these bite-sized chunks and then it becomes more and more manageable. And then you can like kind of tackle each one. You can figure out which ones are the most important, which ones do you need to have versus which ones are nice to have. And so, you know, it, through that effort is it really helps to be able to um, parse something into uh, a manageable uh, set of problems instead of just like one huge problem. Yeah, definitely. Ken, just going into COVID, how would you like kind of dissect the problem that is surrounding pandemics? Well, um, that is a very big question. Um, so I think with pandemics, it's so important to remember that this is a multi-sectoral problem. This spans, it's not just a biology problem. There's an economic related component, there's sociological, there's, uh, you know, if you think of on the broader sense, the one health issues that are associated because a lot of uh, epidemics and pandemics are uh, basically emerging from animals into humans. So, uh, you know, the one health approach tries to take into account the animals, environments, humans. So it, it is a very big global problem that, um, you know, requires, um, Although it requires a global solution, it's also a very local component that, you know, things are happening on the ground. The epidemic is playing out, you know, person by person in everybody's lives. And so I think um, there's, a, there's a scale challenge because you've got local up to global as, the, you know, the areas where, where governance and activities might need to happen. You've got, um, you know, the biological, the economic and sociological. So it is an extremely complex issue. And I think the, the key really is to tackling the problem is to not take a siloed view. You need a multidisciplinary, multi-sectoral approach to handling how, how we would tackle it. So, um, you know, I, I, I don't have the, the full answer yet, but I know that it's going to require, uh, you know, this type of uh, many different viewpoints coming in um, to ensure that we have a, an inclusive solution and um, uh, you know one that that can be sustainable because that actually sustainability of any types of solutions around epidemics and pandemics is a very key issue because uh, a lot of times what we've seen happen in prior epidemics and pandemics is what's called a panic and neglect cycle which um, you know something that was um, coined by the World Bank that you know when there's an, when there's something happening there's a great amount of panic everybody's trying to solve the problem there's a lot of um, you know resources can, are uh, suddenly found to work on it but then, uh, memories fall away, other priorities take hold, and then not even a couple of years later, there are other, other things preempt, you know, the planning for the pandemics. And then we, we kind of like get into this vicious cycle. Whereas if we were to be able to better prepare and even prevent 
these types of events from happening would be so much more cost effective. So that that would be the goal. We gotta you know shift our mindset and take a more proactive approach to these types of um, events. Yeah, definitely. I totally agree with that. And just going a bit deeper into the how you mentioned interdisciplinary kind of areas and. Um, as the leader of MetaBiota, you have to kind of manage these teams that have different skill sets. So how do you kind of, what leadership strategies have you kind of used while managing all these different teams? That's a good question. Um, I think one thing that MetaBiota really um, benefits from is that everybody is very aligned around our mission to make the world more resilient to epidemics, whether it's um, you know, somebody um, in data science who might be an epidemiologist versus an engineer versus even somebody on our you know, finance and administration team, everybody is very aligned around the common purpose. And so that, I think that really helps to you know, teams like we all kind of understand what the goal is. And I think that that applies, um, you know, to any sort of organization where where there are many teams working on a common purpose. It's going to be very critical to understand what that purpose is and to make sure everybody is aligned around the common goal. And I think that that help that goes a very long way in um, you know allowing these teams to work together. Um, another thing that I would also um, add there is the um, communication is really key, and so fostering. Um, very open lines of communication and, um, you know, always kind of assuming that, uh, when, you know, if there's a misunderstanding or something like that, that people are all coming from, you know, they're, they're coming from a good place and, uh, you know, just uh, assuming that, that this can be um, worked through, you know, I think that, that that's going to be uh, critical as well. Yeah, definitely. For what reasons, since our audience is still kind of on their journey of career exploration, which is probably why they're so interested in tuning into this podcast where we explore different careers and different amazing people who are working these different areas, why would they consider entering the field of epidemiology? What kind of perks are there or what do you think the passion comes from? Well, I think if you had asked me this two years ago, I probably would have to spend quite a bit of time explaining what epidemiology is. But I think everybody has a has a reasonable sense now. Um, you know, what I find the most rewarding about it is, um, and, and something that probably drew me to it to begin with, is that when we're looking at um, these epidemiological questions, at least from my standpoint, what you're looking at really is a population Based view. You're trying to create better systems that will impact large numbers of people at once. And so, you know, I think it, it kind of, in some ways, it differs from what you might see in a clinical setting where you're kind of treating a patient, treating a patient, which is very, very important work um, and feeds into a lot of what we do um, in, from an epidemiology side of things. But it's also very um, focused on single individuals and, and treating them. And so, uh, so that's kind of a difference that, that I found um, was, was appealing to like think about trying to affect changes that can really have a, a very large impact on humanity, like looking at very large scale problems. So um, so that that could be one one area where someone may may think that epidemiology is right for them. Um, I also, um, you know, there is a very big quantitative component, and I didn't 
really um, embrace that and, and really know as much about it until started uh, on my journey and my master's degree. So I, I worked a lot in, you know, these various settings, which were, um, you know, had epidemiological um, aspects to them, but like really the number crunching and all that I didn't really start doing, you know, until I was like uh, late in my bachelor's and, and then into my master's. But, but that's where I started to get really interested in the um, computational epidemiology and using a lot of computer simulation modeling to understand these large-scale problems and look at global spread of events or the potential for things to happen. And so it's kind of like doing these large-scale experiments on the computer that you could never do in real life. You know, those, those are the kind of things trying to wrap, he- wrap my head around these really large and complex problems, I think is something that I've, I've found appealing through this process. Yeah, I totally agree. I think the large impact and these really cool and definitely complex, but really fascinating problems is definitely an appeal for this field. But I know that these complex problems can also have a lot of risk and there's a lot of challenges when approaching them. So along your journey, have you learned any strategies for overcoming kind of challenges or even failure during um, your journey working at epidemiology? And what advice would you give to someone who is probably hesitant to um, pursue a field that may have a lot of risks and challenges? Yes, I think the most important thing is to really, you know, it's, it's okay to make mistakes. It's okay to have failures, but the important thing is to learn from those and to have, you know, some sort of uh, takeaways that you can then apply to, you know, the next thing. And then the other key to that is resilience, uh, you know, and grit. <laughs> it's like it, it takes a lot of that in this, in this field, especially, um, you know, sometimes there are challenges that come up or um, just, you know, the thing that I've found is that intersection I mentioned where it's, it's not just a biological question. It's not just a, you know, um, question about what the mathematics are saying. There's a very large component that's related to public policies and um, how humans behave that you really have to take into account into the whole process when you're thinking about how epidemic spread and what are the drivers of risk. So, um, you know, learning, learning that and trying to apply that and, and see, you know, how can we learn from this, I think is, is the key. Uh, for for being successful in the future, but I, I definitely would say um, that uh, a person should not let the fear of failure or the fear of like looking stupid to you know to stop them from uh, you know pursuing their passion or what they think is right. Yeah, definitely. And as a woman, like especially, there are definitely a lot of challenges you approach just being who you are. So have you? approached any challenges specific to being a woman or are there any gender disparities in your field of work? Well, I think it's interesting that in epidemiology um, is actually, um, at least so where where I went to my school of public health, it was like 80% women. And I think that kind of um, continues um, in in the field itself. But, um, you know, contrast that to where I worked when I worked at my prior role, it was actually more focused in the insurance industry, which was, um, you know, a lot more, you know, male dominated. And so um, I learned some strategies through that just because, uh, you know, it it is um, sometimes more difficult to get your voice heard and get your seat at the table. And it's 
um, a lot of it, it seems, and you know, this is just my, my experience, but a lot of it has to do with projected confidence. So if you, you know, if, if you know what you're talking about, then you have to show, show it through your level of confidence talking about it. And I think that in itself really goes a long way to getting people to take you seriously. So that's, um, that's kind of, you know, one thing. And otherwise, just finding a lot of allies and supporters, mentors that are uh, of, of, you know, all kinds of genders and all kinds of, uh, you know, diverse backgrounds, I think is, is also helpful. Just building those, those allies can serve well in the long run. Yeah, definitely. Over the past few years, I've actually been super interested in implementing mindsets. So I think you just kind of mentioned a mindset, um, what I would kind of call boss mentality, where you kind of be confident um, about what you know, but also kind of accept the things that you don't yet know and that you can improve on, which I think is a really important um, mindset when approaching any career in STEM or any career in general. Um, Are there any other mindsets that you would say really helped you in the field or really helped you build up that skill set and become successful in the field? Yeah, I think um, I I liked uh, what you mentioned about, uh, you know, also uh, you know, being uh, aware of what you don't know and being, first of all, not being afraid to ask questions or ask for help if you need it. I think like those things are, are very important. Um, and then, you know, the other mindset or kind of adding to it, maybe I think another one that I really um, kind of live, live by is a kind of a resiliency mindset and just, um, you know, optimism that, uh, okay, so there was a setback, but these are some ways that we can improve. These are ways that we can um, do better and not, not to let setbacks really um, af- you know, kind of like get you down and get you bogged down in focusing on the negative. You really have to focus on what, what's positive and what do you have control over. So I think those are, those are going to be um, critical aspects as well. Yeah, definitely. So we're approaching the end of our interview. I'm going to ask one last question before we kind of wrap everything up. Um, If you could go back to your 18-year-old or high school self, um, what's one piece of advice that you would give to that self? Well, it's a, it's a good question. And I'm not sure my 18-year-old self would listen to me, but (laughs) I think, um, you know, if, if I were to give any advice, it would be really um, something I already touched on, which is that don't be afraid of looking stupid. I feel like that held me back for a number of years before I finally came to realize it's okay to ask questions. It's okay. Like, of course you want to come prepared. You want to know what you're asking about, but it's okay. You know, if, if something doesn't make sense that someone said, it's okay to ask for a clarification. And, um, you know, I think it's just, you know, something that, that over the years I've I've kind of learned that, you know, something doesn't make sense. It it probably actually doesn't make sense. (laughs) And like, you know, I think they should clarify it. So, so that's one area. And then another thing is to not be afraid to advocate for yourself because, and, and, and it's something that I'm still, you know, also learning how to improve on every day. But if, if you've, um, you know, done some very great work, you've 
worked on a very important project, you know, don't be afraid to toot your own horn a little bit. You know, you don't want to sound like you're bragging, but it, it's okay to say, oh, yes, I worked on this. I, you know, it was my idea to do this. Uh, and I think a lot of times women uh, are reluctant to kind of take credit for the work that they've actually done. And so I think um, that's something that it's okay to do. Yeah, thank you so much for all your empowering words at the end of our interview. And definitely your story is super interesting. And I think we've all kind of gotten a really good idea of what epidemiology is, all the technology behind it, and what really makes it such a fascinating field. Um, So thank you so much for joining me today in this interview. Well, thank you for having me. It's been an absolute pleasure talking with you today. Girl Tech Talk is a podcast created by Girl Tech Boss. Thank you so much for listening and stay tuned for our next episode.